0: Welcome to HSDF The Podcast, a collection of policy discussions on government technology and homeland security, brought to you by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. Today's program explores how artificial intelligence is transforming government. In part one of this four-part series, former DHS Undersecretary Reggie Brothers leads a discussion on artificial intelligence mission challenges, cutting-edge AI applications, the impact of AI on the workforce, market opportunities, and AI governance. Dr. Brothers is joined by DHS CTO David Laramore, Shani Spivak from the National Security Council, and Trellix Chief Policy Officer Tom Gann. This program was recorded on October 28, 2022.
1: Moderating this discussion for us is Dr. Reggie Brothers. He currently serves as operating partner at AE Industrial Partners, and prior to this role, he held other leading positions at Big Bear AI, Caraton and the Chertoff Group, and he previously served as Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the Department of Homeland Security and held other leading roles at the Department of Defense and DARPA. We have an awesome group of AI experts, including uh, Mr. David Larimore, Chief Technology Officer at the Department of Homeland Security, Ms. Shani Spivik, Director of Emerging Technology and International Collaboration at the National Security Council, and Mr. Tom Gann, who is the Chief Public Policy Officer at Trout. So, welcome to all of you, and Dr. Brothers, I will turn things over to you.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much. Really do appreciate it. For this this first panel, what we'd like to do is is talk about AI at more of a strategic level. And as such, we want to think about policy, think about applications, these kinds of things. What I'd like to do is start out, In order to kind of give us all a sense of of just the context of the panelists, I'd like each of you to just start out talking about what are some of the challenges that you have, you know, day to day? What are some of the things that keep you keep you up at night? So so I'd like to start. I'm just looking at at my screen. David, like to like to start with you on that one.
3: So as the DHS Chief Technology Officer, we have the incredible challenge of not just providing governance and oversight, but protecting AI. That is one of our highest priorities. What I mean by that is AI has been in use for years, machine learning algorithms, everything from document management with USCIS, everything from facial recognition, right, for things for grants management, et cetera. So we are already using the technology in a lot of places, but lack of appropriate governance, lack of appropriate oversight um, is becoming an issue where we are worried about whether or not we will continue to be able to use AI ML in the future. There's been a lot of heavily debated topics in executive orders around facial recognition, especially, and getting appropriate oversight, appropriate governance that provides transparency to the public, provides the ability for headquarters to be able to advise on investments, to allow us to provide the appropriate level of oversight when it comes to validating the models to make sure that the systems are being safe and effective, not duplicative, et cetera, else has been a top
2: priority and a hard challenge to solve. That's a great way to start us off. We appreciate that. Shani?
1: Yeah, I think to, to David's point, a lot of this, there's no easy solution or one size fits all solution. So I think one of the major challenges I see is how to identify the best practices and methodologies that are going to be effective in, you know, as many use cases as possible or in the right use cases where we see the most most risk. So there are a lot of efforts across government to to work on this, notably out, out of NIST and osTP and, and other places and I also want to commend the agencies the pun and agencies themselves for taking a lot of this on because they've done a lot of a, a lot of background work in identifying for their department for their agency, what that looks like, what responsible AI looks like for each particular use case, understanding that we're not going to have, you know, very large scale frameworks that apply across the board and effectively mitigate risk or identify all those areas where where we can either, you know, have have one practice in place that applies to every use case in every agency. That just won't be the case. So really the challenge is how scalable are Certain mechanisms or certain consideration, and for the rest of it, it's really about injecting a lot more critical thinking and maybe independent thought into the process, and as much kind of outside engagement as possible. Where, where
4: it's well, first, it's a great thing to be on this panel. Really look forward to it. First, Trellix. We're a new company. We're the combination of McAfee and FireEye. Our exclusive focus is government and also business. And in terms of a challenge, you know, it's an opportunity to integrate these companies. We're very focused on delivering next generation XDR solutions. A good portion of that value proposition is around integrating AI and machine learning capabilities to leverage our various assets for the benefit of our customers. You know, to answer your question on what keeps me awake at night, what I'm concerned about ai is an incredible growth area great opportunity you know different market forecasts suggest a 30 trillion dollar market opportunity on a global basis the us china europe you know being uh, real competitors to play in a big role in this new world there are great social benefits to ai we've certainly heard about the consumer aspects Uh, On the flip side, there are security risks with any new technology, and I think that's an area we want to take a look at. I think there's also the question of an entirely new set of technologies being delivered at scale on a global basis where we don't yet fully understand all the implications. You know, technology always has great upside, also has risks. And I think the challenge for policymakers, challenge for the private sector, really continue to talk collaborate, think through the ways in which we get into this bright future in a positive
2: way. David, you talked about applications. The video we saw as a lead-in showed applications. What are some of the applications, the near-term applications? You mentioned that DHS has used them right now. You mentioned facial recognitions. What are some of the areas that you think in the near-term AI is best applied?
3: Oh, man. Okay. So in the past, Chess has been leveraging AI for a lot of internal efficiencies, right? So We've got to tag these documents, and these documents are 50 pages long. Are we going to manually go through and read them? Well, we can use NLP to be able to go and automatically tag documents, saving a significant amount of time, like real burden reduction, real cost savings. And that's incredible. We're starting to realize that there's another approach. There's another angle, rather. And so we have used the customer experience executive order as a driver and a push for AI, right? So when you talk about facial recognition, right? Facial recognition had, had predominantly been used as a mechanism to provide a higher level of identity verification for, you know, being able to provide validation or verification of an individual. We're now realizing that that technology can be used to provide a better experience. So when you're at an airport, we can use facial recognition to provide a touchless experience for travelers, right? All the controls and safety need to put in place when it comes to human in the loop, when it comes to a notification, all of that has to happen. But if a citizen wants to be able to have a faster, touchless experience in the airport, like we can use AIML technologies to do that. Right, looking at AI ML for reduction when it comes to the Paperwork Reduction Act, right, burden reduction there. So, we are really investing energy and time into looking at AI to solve customer experience problems, not just
2: cybersecurity, not just forms and, and internal efficiencies. You see, what do you see in right now in terms of adoption? Because there's an interesting Harvard Business Review article. I think it was a couple of years ago. They talked about one of the biggest challenges is culture. Right. It's actually adopting these kinds of tools. What are you seeing in terms of the adoption within within DHS of these these technologies?
3: I think it's the adoption is tends to follow the market and it tends to follow risk. So we, you know, I have a vendor engagement group inside of the CTO's office, and we meet constantly with companies that are bringing new types of AI, ML technologies, different types of, you know, workbench technologies and and platforms that generalize existing open source algorithms, et cetera. And what we tend to find is we don't look necessarily at the impact to the mission as much as cost savings. That traditionally has been the overall marker, right? So so this technology costs X amount of dollars. Is that going to save us Y amount of dollars? So I think adoption has been tr- predominantly linked to that. So being able to find that use case, I, I don't think that we have truly adopted that mindset of is it going to fundamentally improve the experience, right? And is is the cost savings as much on the burden to citizens as it is
2: to, you know, the, the cost to a program? Thank you. Tom, in your earlier comments, you mentioned, uh, you know, integrating AIML. Where are you seeing some of the benefits there and, and how's that working so far?
4: Yeah, excellent question. Well, here's the big thing. You know, the hackers are always innovating very, very rapidly. The latest and greatest cybersecurity solution today that is cutting edge very often can be obsolete in 18 months simply because hackers, you know, are smart. They have available technology. They're ever learning. So the challenge for our industry is to always keep innovating. You know, for us, what we're doing is combining solution sets from two companies, FireEye and McAfee, and putting a focus on an iron triangle (coughs) of technology where we deliver capabilities to add benefit from getting data from the endpoint, delivering strong data protection capabilities and really putting a very large focus on security operations. You know, it's those security op teams that play such a critical role in government in the private sector. And what we believe and what we see is that AI and machine learning can be profoundly useful in helping. Modernize, helping fuse, helping to get the full benefit of a range of technologies. And, you know, for government and business, and we could have a long discussion about this, there's a great cybersecurity gap of skilled people. So, automating functions can add great value in particularly dealing with more routine tasks, freeing analysts and people up to do the harder, higher level work. AI has great benefits that really go beyond, you know, A quick answer here on the panel, I think we can delve into them more greatly as we have our discussion. But, you know, the ability to learn rapidly, the ability to do pattern recognition at a scale and a level of complexity that exceeds the ability of humans to execute those functions really is an example of the opportunity set from a security point of view.
2: So, um, Shani, from your perspective in NSA, where do you see some of the, the broader applications of the near term, and then what do you see as some of those challenges? Because I, I do want to have a longer conversation about governance and all those kinds of things. Kind of after this,
1: absolutely. I think in kind of broad terms and across government, I, I'd say mainly two areas. One being what was already mentioned, dealing with complexity. So helping you know any industry, government, public sector, civil group with massive amounts of, of complexity that are just increasing at this point in terms of we've got data volume, speed and, and variety. There's, there's just too much for a human being to process in a lot of contexts across a lot of use cases. So AI has been very effective in, in a lot of those where we're applied responsibly. And I think the other lane is in personalization. So this is maybe a newer topic than some of the earlier you know, discussions around AI and what it could be used for in personalization. What we see is AI allows us to kind of effectively tune certain processes to, to different groups to make it easier for them to, to either engage with, with that model or to just make the model more effective and and, and equitable in, in some cases. So I think those two lines are the, the primary focus areas in terms of utility in AI because what you always want to avoid is the solution looking for a problem. So as, I think as long as approaches take the first track of you know, identifying the problem and f- figuring out whether AI is in fact the right solution for that problem in the first place, then you find the best use cases of AI in this case.
2: Could, could, like, could you articulate a little bit more on the impersonalization? Like, what, what's an example of that?
1: I think I see a lot of, and this is more on the private sector side at this point, I think, but a lot of companies are looking to use AI to channel user experience to certain users based on their preferences. Now that can be good because it can you know, provide the right resources for the right people at the right time, um, or it can be you know, ineffective in that it create, could create filter bubbles. So we want to avoid that and obviously do that in a, in a responsible way, but it helps, I think, in tuning and in understanding where that part of the science is going. So not necessarily these large one-size-fits-all models. I see a lot more in the personalization space, at least more recently
2: and challenges where, where do you see some so I mean, those two those two broad categories where do you see the challenges in terms of large large scaling or large scale adoption
1: absolutely i think culture was absolutely part of it you know there's limited talent as well so bridging the divide i think between the folks on the technical side who can build and operate the models, who understand the technology, and the people who understand the context. So that can be the users and the program managers. You know, in whatever system, whether it's private sector, or public, or or just a you know small scale uh, system, it's really about bridging the divide uh, in the team and making sure you've got good fusion of. The technical aspects of how can we build the model, and a better, good understanding of the context in which the model will operate, the data that will be used, how the users will interact with it, and so on. And there's a ton of other, you know, criteria around that. It's, it's very complex. And I'm oversimplifying everything, but I think that's that's where I see kind of the core challenge is getting everybody kind of on the same page and working together towards the you know the most effective model possible, and knowing that there's. A, you know, a moving goalpost in a lot of these cases, the guardrails are changing pretty rapidly, the discussions around, you know, what effective oversight looks like uh, are changing and a lot of the research is still. So we all have a lot to learn, and especially from each other. So that that engagement, communication and representation is very important.
2: Before we get into the standard standardization, as you mentioned, governance, let's talk about talent, because all three of you mentioned talent. And workforce and these kinds of things. Just whoever wants to start first, can you talk about thoughts on, on how to increase the, uh, the talent, whether it's in the government or the private sector? Shani, would you would you like to go or
1: oh, you go ahead. I'll go second, I guess.
2: you, you know a couple things. First and foremost,
3: the product side of the industry is evolving significantly faster than the experts pool available to implement those technologies. So, uh, and that's a factor, right? That's, that's a big factor. So Mm -hmm. adopting a technology, if, if I'm unable to prove to, you know, our contracting officers that there is a adequate enough vendor pool to be able to support the implementation of a technology that adds a significant amount of paperwork and burden, sole source, various other things that, that sometimes aren't necessarily the juices worth the squeeze in a lot of areas for Trying out a technology that doesn't exist yet, or trying out a technology that is not as commercially available or is not as prevalent as existing technologies. There's another problem too, and that is on the government side, right? We have spent the last 20 years making sure that every single one of our program managers understands how to build ships, guns, and boats. And then we've spent the last eight or 10 years trying to get them to understand how to build IT systems. Well, there has not been a huge change into how are we training folks for AIML. Additionally, if you can find a person who is highly experienced in artificial intelligence and machine learning, but willing to get paid a GS-14 or 15 pay to do governance work versus actually implementing the technologies, please give me a call. That's a real problem. We, our GS Scales does not support the amount that people want to get paid, but we have a critical need for governance and oversight, and that requires experience. So it's just it's a common And anyway, so it's just part of me being here today. is like well, that's the big that's the big so what for us is figuring out how do we how do we fill that gap?
2: Are you? I mean, how are you? Is there more outreach to universities? More outreach to the private sector? I mean, how how are you thinking about trying to? kind of open up the Aperture to to get more folks?
3: So DHS has made a a huge investment to what they're calling, what they call CTMS, right? The Cyber Talent Management System. We have been opening the Aperture on that to look at other skill sets than specifically cyber. So that is a mechanism available. Um, There's a whole nother side of the story where DHS, S&T can, you know, talk about their works with the FFRDCs and talk about the work they're doing in the innovation communities, et cetera. And with the academic institutions, but I'm talking about, you know, core federal employees, yeah. um, not necessarily on the early research side, right? We need we need the folks that actually have practical experience to lead projects and have government owned, right? That that is a huge problem that you know we look at a lot of the failures and programs on the past, and that is the government doesn't necessarily own the or lead the technology and the implementation of technology because of lack of knowledge, right? And so CTMS is an option that we have. It is a way to start to right-size that problem I, I mentioned previously, but it is it's literally a year old, right? And so we're, we're still working on getting all the cyber folks in, in the communities to understand how, to, you know, what certifications are required and, and how to get involved there, let alone starting to pivot
2: to AIML. Thanks. One thing, after, after we talked to Shani and Tom about this workforce, I do want to come back to you about... You mentioned we haven't really been trained in IT or expand that into in de- developing software, right? Really? And the DOD's done a lot with with some of their newer programs, right? Trying to have DevSecOps in, employed in challenges and these kinds of things. I'd like to come back to you and see if, if if you're doing any of those kinds of things or or thinking about some of the the ways DOD is approaching some of these things. Shani, Over to you, what what are some of your thoughts on, on, on the workforce, workforce development?
1: Yeah I think those are really good points especially about having folks in government with that background you know knowledge and experience because a lot of this can't be outsourced. You know, you can't have just vendors come in and, and sell tools to, to the government without having any kind of you know oversight or visibility. Obviously there are mechanisms for that and there are places where, you know, like word processors, we we can do that with a certain amount of risk tolerance. But there are gonna be plenty of examples where we wanna have the expertise in-house and we need to have the expertise in-house to ask, you know, the critical questions around these methodologies and to better understand where and how they should be applied. So you have the you know, you have the digital service and you have fellowships across government and you have good programs, but there certainly is a lot of room to to bring more of that technical expertise in across departments and agencies. And I'm I'm encouraged by by things like the the National Science Foundation's national AI research institutes and work mm-hmm. that kind of put those hubs, because that brings in, you know, government, academia, private sector working together on, on big challenges. And then you have the National AI Search Resource Task Force and their interim report. So a lot of really good work in trying to understand how we grow the AI ecosystem in a responsible way, kind of building in from the groundwork, um, things like privacy preserving technologies. We're thinking about security and we're thinking about civil rights and civil liberties that are associated with these, these technologies.
2: Did I go back to you. Your thumbs up. What, what are your thoughts?
3: Oh, I just full support of all of those things i haven't even dived into you know the concepts of civil rights and civil liberties and we work very closely with those all offices up in management and it has been incredible to see how quickly you know lawyers and and policy folks are having to adapt and learn to this this new area and i'm just Proud in a lot of ways about how quickly they're they're starting to become adapt to that. And I think it's because there's a deluge of things coming from GAO, OMB, the White House, OSTP, right? So so they are constantly under fire when it comes to these areas. So they have been forced to adapt and improve and, and start figuring out how what are the impacts. To civil rights and civil liberties, and what are the impacts to to privacy when it comes to utilizing these technologies? Commercial use has been a incredible area of growth up in management. As far as what is what data can we use? What data can we provide to industry? What can't we provide to industry? You know what is what is PII in this world? Where there's a lot more metadata markers that can create PII than what we originally thought were just kind of like social security number and an email address. There's a lot more there. And we're we're exploring that areas. So it's been it's been really cool to be part of it. Very excited. Very excited.
2: Very cool. Hey Tom, over, over to you on this, this workforce development. You've got the dual problem: your your, your cyber and AI, right? How is uh, how is Trellix thinking about this?
4: Well, it's a great question. For example, in general, in the federal government, there tends to be about a 15,000 person gap on cybersecurity skilled professionals every year. You know. It depends on the year. That number can be higher, can be lower. But, you know, based on the research, that's the gap in the in the macro sense. There's a gap of, I don't know, a million to two million cybersecurity skilled individuals at the different levels needed in industry and government on a yearly basis, depending on the studies that you look at. This gap is then even compounded further as both the public and the private sectors are looking for cybersecurity. Skills that are enhanced with the ability to do AI. What to do about it? I mean, I think for us and I think other companies, uh, we're really thinking through how we hire. You know, a college degree in computer science is awesome, right? However, we're finding talented people from the gamer community, we're finding talented veterans. An example a cousin of mine is in cybersecurity now. He did an online program. His initial training was being a firefighter. And it turns out that the firefighting training in a SOC is a huge competitive advantage, right? Because he's learned how to deal with stress. He's learned how to deal with systems and processes. He's learned how to work in a team. You know, within three years, in addition to the online training he got, you know, he's running the SOC. You know, he's thinking about hey, how am I gonna be the chief security officer of my healthcare company? And you know, diverse backgrounds, right? I mean, there's there are there's a kid. Today, flipping burgers, nothing wrong with flipping burgers, I did it too as a kid, who may just not know they've got incredible talent in this area. So I think for us in the private sector and government is thinking differently about qualifications, it's reaching out to people and, you know, having a welcome map and diverse teams that can deliver based on skill sets and a common purpose. You know, there's a huge, great opportunity to turn this gap into into a great opportunity set.
0: Thank you for tuning in. You can follow HSDF the podcast on any major podcast platform. Visit hsdf.org to learn more about the Homeland Security and Defense Forum.